Welcome to Point Two Law Review. I'm John Brandt. And I'm Carson Messersmith. And we are here the week of June 20th, 2023. Versus. Uh, versus. <laughs> oh, man. Two, June 23rd, 2023. It's a Friday. It is a Friday. And speaking of Fridays, um, so I, I'm on Twitter, obviously. And, and Nick uh, Mastius, he's from Yo Muchacho in Lincoln. He had a Twitter The big burritos, it. right? The big burritos. Big burritos, yeah. yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, and okay, the, yeah. the, the, the ha- Hatchmack. It burritos is what they have and he has a twitter poll and i think it's a really good question i'm going to ask you you ready and then i'll give you what his final results all right are. i like it okay who has the better ranch runza or amigos runza runza is the that best. was quick yeah i think really? Ru- yeah i think runza is the best ranch in the state in the state yeah for a chain you know, oh restaurants. no chain yeah, yeah, yeah i would yeah, agree yeah, with yeah, you. yeah chain restaurants but amigos amigos them- is good but there's something Runza's is thinner, right? Oh, yeah. So, yeah, I guess it depends on if, if you're not okay with a thinner, more buttermilk ranch. But I, there's just something about Runza Ranch. Well, there you go. The results of the poll, I'm looking at it right now, were 58.2 Runza. 40, whatever wow, the math that is. is 41.8 Amigos. In the words of the, and I feel like I can say this because they say it on a, on a public commercial, in the words of Frank's Red Hot, those commercials, <laughs> I put that shit on everything. <laughs> Uh, family friendly. That's still PG. Yeah. All right. If you're on this pod and you haven't heard that word before, I, I am so sorry. <laughs> we are talking about, and we're going to talk about today, very serious things. Yeah. And so the S word should be able to be said. Yeah, it should be allowed. All right. Let's do next party summary. Go to it, Carson. In Ray, a state of Wiggins, rescission versus reformation. I have a supplemental opinion on uh, NRA Manual C Mateo S uh, versus the Red Band Lake of Chippewa Indians. Uh, hashtag burden classification. Lincoln's uh, Lincoln County Board of Equalization versus Webster Tabor Ranch Apartments. Valuation of property. All right, that was just three from the Brass Spring Court today, right? Yep, I think so. All right, let's get ready with the first one. Go, Carson. All right, so kicking it off with In Ray Estate of Wiggins. Um, and the big issue on this case was that there is an estate here, uh, and we are dealing with a little bit of an overlap between this estate and a prior divorce proceeding. In a prior divorce proceeding, the deceased... Uh, was required to carry a $250,000 life insurance policy for the benefit of his minor children. Uh, At the time he passes, it was believed that there was no life insurance policy for the children, but that there was one life insurance policy with his brother as the name beneficiary in the amount of $360,000. And so as a part of that, and here with a, a family agreement, you have to believe that the brother's doing this for the benefit probably of his, I believe, niece and nephew. Um, here there's an agreement reached where uh, the brother Jason will give $250,000 of his insurance proceeds into a trust and then the uh, ex-wife would withdraw her claim. The goofy part here is that they enter into this settlement agreement and at that point in time they learn that one of the daughters was actually the beneficiary of one of these life insurance policies and that the uh, brother was a beneficiary of the other policy. And so there is 120000 of this 360000 that's paid directly to uh, one of the daughters, 
and this money is is um, not placed in the trust, and then the insurer pays two hundred and forty thousand to the brother, who then pays a hundred and thirty thousand into the trust to equal that one hundred and fifty thousand, and keeps one hundred and ten thousand himself. The ex-wife takes issue with that and argues that he is required under the settlement agreement to pay the entire two hundred and forty thousand into the trust for the children. And here. Um, the county court found that there was a uh, use of the word gift in the settlement agreement. And so that re- reflected the party's understanding that Jason had no legal obligation to pay any of these life insurance p- proceeds. And therefore the 130,000 that he paid satisfied his obligation under the settlement agreement. And so essentially the county court reforms this agreement. And what the Supreme court concludes is that the county court did err in reforming this agreement, but that the, agreement itself was not enforceable and therefore it should be rescinded. And so the big discussion in this case and and where it has value is the discussion of the difference between reformation and rescission in contracts and when those things should happen. So when should we reform a contract versus when should we just get rid of this um, contract? And here they define uh, rescission as being granted when the parties have apparently entered into a contract, evidenced by writing, but owing to a mistake. And so you don't have that meeting of the minds to all essential elements of the transaction and therefore no contract is actually ever formed. So you miss that meeting of the minds and Therefore, it can't be reformed because there wasn't a contract, and so the only remedy is rescission. And so here, both the settlement agreement and the uh, stipulated facts show that here it was a mutual mistake of fact as an inducement to this agreement. And so therefore, there should be rescission, not reformation, because a mutual mistake when entering into it means that there was actually never that meeting of the minds, and therefore there's no contract. And so here they reverse the judgment of the county court, remand it uh, with cause to rescind the settlement agreement, not to reform it, and then to um, essentially carry out that, which would be consistent with um, what Jason was arguing, which was that he had paid the adequate amount of money and that the niece and nephew had ended up with the 250000 that they were intended to receive. Okay, now I feel like I'm cheating a little because this is, number two here is a supplemental opinion. It's a whopper. It's a, it's a two-page and the first page... <laughs> It's basically the naming of the parties in the caption. Um, so it's it's one page, and, and basically, I'm not going to take a lot of time on it. I went back and looked at the original one, which was issued out in April 21st, 2023. Go back to that uh, pod if you want to learn uh, about this in Ray uh, Manuel C. versus Mateo C. Basically, it's an ICWA case. Uh, it involved a lot of uh, what was a final penal uh, appealable order and what affected a substantial right. And it had other kind of discussion about NICWA protections and who has the burden. Now, the court in that case back in in the opinion back in April made some distinctions regarding um, who has the burden to uh, provide that information. And they put it on the tribe. This supplemental opinion seems to take out the tribal burden language from the opinion and affirms that the procedure that was utilized uh, in the court below was consistent with some federal ICWA changes that happened subsequently. Um, with the amount of time I just took, I probably could have just read it, but I wanted to give some context to it too. So that is uh, the basis of the supplemental opinion for NRA Manual C and Mateo S. 
All right, so now I think we jump to Lincoln County Board of Equalization versus Western Tabor Ranch Apartments. And then I'll be honest, I'm not going to dump it, jump too much into this case because this is kind of one of those, again, where it's a little bit out of my wheelhouse. But um, it's an appeal from the Tax Equalization and Review Commission. And the big issue on appeal is the valuation of this um, pretty large apartment building and the different ways um, that you can get to that evaluation. So the main argument here is that there was an income approach that was used by the county, they used some previous years, and then uh, the property owner is arguing that an appraisal approach or like the purchase price and, and private valuation are what it should be. And so they go through uh, the statutes and, and what um, exists here. And so it's, uh, section 77-201 states that all real property shall be valued at its actual value, and then it defines actual value as the market value of real property in the ordinary course of trade. And generally, a county assessor may um, determine actual value using the sales comparison approach, uh, the income approach, the cost approach, or any professionally accepted mass appraisal method. method. And here, um, they looked at uh, calculating... Um, the actual value on rent restricted projects, uh, which this was, and um, often it uses the income approach. And you can use um, the income approach in most of these, but if there is one where um, the the income form from the property owner isn't timely filed, um, or there isn't income or expense data from other years, you can use the other approaches. And here, um, there were essentially two data sets that the county assessor had, and that uh, caused the county assessor to doubt the accuracy of the income approach um, and if it should have used a different valuation. And here, what the Supreme Court says is that the county assessor should have used a different approach rather than substituting its own modified income approach and using these uh, various years to reach their number. And therefore, they found that the uh, tax equalization uh, board was correct in their decision uh, to overrule the county's assessment value and then um, use the assessed value from the property from 2018, 2019, and 2020 um, as the uh, actual value of the uh, property. And so on appeal, they affirmed um, the actual uh, value of this property being used as the um, appraisal value, which is what the uh, Tabor Apartments had uh, proposed. I got to say, Turk is one of my favorite acronyms to say. It is fun. Don't you? <laughs> you got Turk, the Turk. The, the Turk. Turk. Call him the Turk. The Turk. And then uh, FERC is also fun to say. Yeah. Uh, I can't think of any other fun acronyms off the top of my head right now. Uh, but that's it for the Nebraska Supreme Court, the NSC. Yeah, that was a big, big week for uh, you. <laughs> my, my one uh, page uh, opinion. Uh, so thank you, <laughs> Nebraska Supreme Court, for that. For giving just that, that whopping case. Yeah, I think the first one's yours for Court of Appeals. Is that right? I believe so. And Are so we... the first case that we come to from the Court of Appeals is Schultz versus State of, State of Nebraska. And the big issue here is that Schultz was suing the state of Nebraska and an employee for de uh, damages sustained in a motor vehicle accident. 
And the big issue on appeal is that it was dismissed for uh, failure to prosecute. And uh, the argument on appeal is that the district court had abused its discretion and its discretion in failing to consider the requisite factors in determining whether good cause existed uh, to not dismiss the case. And here, uh, this case had been pending for 18 months, uh, so it had been around for quite a while. And um, the attorney for Schultz had basically said that, yeah, we haven't put a lot of time into uh, discovery or anything to get this moving, but we um, have talked with the state and we're prepared to have an expedited schedule to make sure that this gets uh, tried and, and um, have, has a hearing um, and, and finds a resolution here. And the big analysis from the Nebraska Supreme Court here, in, which is, is helpful, are all of the factors that a district court um, should consider during a uh, show cause hearing and the things that they should look at as far as uh, what should constitute um, good cause. And so there's, um, you know, various things like the, the length of delay, uh, the alternate remedies outside of dismissal. And the big issue with this case is that if this matter is dismissed, it's then going to be outside of the statute of limitations if they go to refile. So it's essentially dispositive um, of this case. And um, they go through, again, all these factors. And so these are things uh, you want to look at if you're looking at, you know, what are the good cause factors uh, for um, showing or demonstrating uh, why something uh, hasn't been prosecuted. And then it also goes through, again, those alternative remedies and all the, the various things that uh, lend, lend themselves towards either dismissing a case or allowing it to um, consider or to continue, I mean. And so here the uh, Court of Appeals actually reverses the district court um, dismissing Schultz's complaint primarily because of the fact that the district court failed uh, to consider the requisite factors here and they do go through the weighing of the factors and it, it seems to indicate that they were also finding that the factors here did not weigh uh, in favor of dismissal even if good sh good cause wasn't shown uh, because of the other uh, factors weighing against this case being dismissed versus having another uh, sanction or remedy. So this was reversed um, and remanded. All right, I got Ditter v. Cush. This is a harassment protection order uh, appeal involving neighbors in a boundary dispute. The standard of review is de novo on the record. <clears throat> the uh, situation involved an altercation between the neighbors and um, it resulted in one of the parties being in a hospital for five days uh, with a concussion. Based on that at the hearing that they had, uh, there was an inability on the person who sought the protection order, Mr. Cush, um, to remember certain facts. Um, I don't know whether that's related to the concussion or not, but there was an inability to remember certain facts. So the uh, was enough in the affidavit to grant the protection order, and then at the hearing, he was he said uh, the, the court asked if everything in the affidavit was true, and he said yes, and then that was enough to... Um, provide a uh, continuation of the harassment protection order for a year. The, on appeal, they uh, indicate that because of the uh, petitioner's inability to remember certain facts, that was their first assignment of error, that the uh, harassment protection order should not have been granted, and that, that it was a one-time altercation and therefore not a consistent court of uh, course of conduct as required by the statute in order to keep the harassment protection order going. Um, there was an affidavit 
uh, with facts as previously stated in the and the um, petitioner averred those at the hearing so there's there was sufficient evidence and that's what the court of appeals found there was sufficient facts uh, in that affidavit in order to continue the um, harassment texture now the interesting part of this to me is that you know you, you get a very technical argument like well one item isn't a course of conduct but here the court of appeals is saying um, there was an ongoing boundary dispute and because of that boundary dispute that's enough for the course of conduct uh, language so you have this dispute whether it culminates in a uh, basically an assault I don't, I don't know whether this was criminally prosecuted or not or just some kind of um, disagreement that uh, happened between these neighbors because of that, um, Taylor Swift would call it bad blood. Because of that, um, there is enough to establish a course of conduct, and it was uh, affirmed. All right. So the uh, next opinion that we come to is State v. Jennings, and this is an appeal from a plea-based conviction. And the big issues on appeal are uh, ineffective assistance of counsel regarding the plea and then the district court erring in not allowing Jennings to withdraw his plea. And Jennings alleges various things uh, on appeal as for as to why uh, he should have been allowed to withdraw his plea and then also why his counsel was ineffective. Um, and most of these things are, one, either uh, too general on appeal to be addressed by the Court of Appeals, and they say that uh, at various points in time. And then there's also things like uh, Jennings alleging that his uh, counsel intimidated him into accepting the plea agreement, um, and the, the Court of Appeals goes through how the record uh, directly refutes that and how, uh, you know, they the district court went through all the uh, various factors and the knowing intelligently voluntarily uh, entering into that plea and so the uh, record refutes what Jen Jennings is arguing uh, on appeal and then um, as far as uh, it, the final issue which was uh, Jennings asking for uh, his counsel to withdraw and um, for him to be able to proceed by himself uh, he failed uh, to assign this as an error and so the court of appeals doesn't even address that doesn't even address that um, and they basically summarily take care of all of uh, his assignments of error um, on appeal and they affirmed State v. Ortiz, a uh, similar situation here. We have an individual who pled to, um, now I got to say, I think there's a discrepancy here between what was stated in the introduction and then what was in the background. So the introduction here says Mr. Ortiz um, pled to two counts of first-degree sexual assault. In the background section, it says he was charged with one count of first-degree sexual assault and one count of first-degree sexual assault, and he later he also charged with tampering with a witness, and a plea agreement provided for the state would reduce the charges, and Ortiz would enter his pleas to reduce charges. The charges were amended to two counts of second-degree uh, sexual assault. So I think uh, one of those needs to be fixed probably. I don't know which one because I don't have the record in front of me, but that probably needs to happen. He claimed on appeal here that there was an excessive sentence. That was the uh, first assignment of error, second assignment of error, was ineffective assistance of counsel. He was given 15 to 20 years on each count consecutive. Um, the victim here was a 16-year-old uh, daughter of his girlfriend. The uh, first assignment of error regarding the excessive sentence was within the statutory range, therefore it's affirmed that he had several uh, ineffective assistance of counsel claims. I'm gonna go through them just for uh, education purposes, I suppose, um, on what is going to be alleged by some defendants on appeal for ineffective assistance of counsel in these types of matters. 
uh, failure to identify and depose witnesses that uh, didn't corroborate the victim's testimony. Uh, the court here said there was insufficient information to rule on that, but it was preserved for post-conviction. Failure to, uh, this is number two, failure to contradict the factual basis um, at the plea hearing, and the court has uh, consistently held that there's no prejudice in uh, misstatements in a factual basis as long as they don't go to an element of the offense. The um, number third, or number third, the third one here is a review of the victim's deposition with the defendant to identify inconsistencies. The court here goes out of its way to review the deposition and says, and the um, basically the forensic interview of the victim, and they say there are no inconsistencies, and further, the defendant admitted the conduct that would have um, satisfied the elements of the offense here. The fourth one here is the failure to look at the victim's medical records. The court says they don't have enough information to say why that would have uh, changed anything, so they preserve that for post-conviction. Um, failure to advise on DNA testing. So he says that there was uh, an item found in the uh, child's room that wasn't uh, tested for DNA, and he says that that DNA could have been somebody else's. The court here says, well, it doesn't matter if it's somebody else's. You admitted to other things. Um, that would be kind of irrelevant to, to what happened here. So that is, uh, you know, not going to be um, something that we have enough information to review that, and that's not successful as far as an ineffective assistance of counsel claim. And then the last one here is a review pre-sentence investigation. They say there was insufficient evidence to show how the failure to the alleged failure to review the pre-sentence investigation with the defendant here uh, was an effective assistance of counsel. All of those were denied uh, or preserved for later post-conviction, and his conviction was affirmed. Is that it? Are we done? I think that's it. What a quick one this week. Let me see here. I have one more question for you. This is almost as important as the ranch oh question. Boy. Are you ready? Oh, boy. This is here. Are you ready? I'm ready. All right, here we go. See if you can figure this one out just by the song. You know what it, You know what my question is going to be? No, I don't know what your question is going to oh. I mean, I know the song. Of course you do. Everybody does. Everybody does. Yeah, everybody knows that intro. All right. So Elon Musk and Mark Zuckerberg. Have oh, agreed. yeah. Who wins that fight? Who wins? Zuck. I'm. I'm 100. He's been with training. You. I'm fine with them fighting in a cage. I want it to be a golden cage, just for metaphorical purposes. Yeah. I want it to be a complete golden cage in Las Vegas, uh, surrounded by people smoking cigars. Well, did you ever see that uh, picture? Drinking runs a ranch dressing. That's quite a sight. Speaking of sights, though. Did should you, we put did, in the AI simulator right now and see no, what photographs? No, we should not do that. <laughs> did, did you see the, the photos of Musk uh, getting it on and off his yacht? He doesn't look like he's in fighting shape. I, ha I have seen that, and, uh, you know, maybe he could surprise he's me. He's surprising. Maybe he's got the reach advantage. But Zuck has the, in my mind, I'm going to execute on this thing. If yeah. I am, if I am going to commit to uh, beating Elon, that's Musk, all he'll do for the next six months, twelve <laughs> hours a day, fifteen it's hours. It's going to be a Pink Panther scenario where people are jumping out everywhere and he has to fight them. Uh, it's going to be insane. So yeah. I, I would also take Zuck. Okay, so we're we're, we're on the same agreement. page. Oh, good. Okay, so if they ever do fight. And Joe Rogan is no doubt the host of that. Yes. Um, uh, we'll see who wins. Yeah, we'll put bets on. Yeah. Bets on Zuck. Yeah, bets on Zuck. All right, this is Point Two Law Review for another week. I'm John Brandt. And I'm Carson Messersmith. Let's go back to episode one to review the disclaimer. And uh, brought to you, Anderson Klein, Brewster Brandt. Oh, yeah. Offices in Col uh, Kearney, Holdridge, and Minden. 
Right? Yeah. Anything else? I think that's the full outro. <laughs> Have a great week, everybody.